Warning, this film contains content that some viewers might find distressing. Viewer discretion is advised. It left an indelible imprint on all of our souls. I know that, Levitt said. It was very tough, and for it not to be a safe rescue, we didn't mind working. We worked and worked and worked. His breathing was labored as his chest tried to expand against the hard rock, his breath coming back up into his face, his nose an inch from the wall. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Greetings and welcome to Frozen Time. I'm Catherine of Skye, and here we relate moments in history that shape the people around them, events which are often dark, disturbing, and tragic. So if that's what you're into, you're in the right place. Please subscribe to our channel and turn on all notifications so you don't miss any of our weekly uploads. All right, it's time to cozy in for a tale that you won't soon forget. The very beginning, John Edward Jones was born into a devout Mormon family. He loved sports, especially basketball. He was the most competitive child in the family. He was the closest in age to his little brother Josh, and that created a bond between them. They spent all their time together as children. The family often went caving, and it was a fun adventure for everyone. They learned many life skills on those vacations, the parents eager to teach their children and also let them explore life. Family was everything to them. On one of these excursions, their father had once gotten briefly stuck between two rocks. Leon Jones worked his way out, but the story entered the trove of family lore, and it was a story they loved to tell at family gatherings, a triumph of circumstance and a blessing from God. Starting a life. As he grew up into a young man, John decided to follow his passion for medicine. When his younger sister was just four years old, she needed heart surgery to save her life, and this affected him very deeply. Of course, having so many siblings, he was used to children and was very fond of them. He decided that his life's calling was to become a pediatric cardiologist so he could help youngsters just like his sister make a real difference in their lives. His other passion was his girlfriend. When he was 20 and a student at Brigham Young University, he met a young woman called Emily, also a student, and they kept bumping into each other. She was attractive, friendly, and seemed to have cast a spell over him. After he got enough courage to finally ask her out, the two spent all their time together, enjoying each other's company. Even early on, John knew she was the one. After a time, he decided to propose to her, writing a song just for her and performing it in a rose-petal-paved open-air restaurant perched at the top of a building, under the sparkling stars of night. It was a beautiful moment, right up until she rejected him. Emily wasn't ready for marriage. She thought it would be too much work and no fun. She also felt called to serve a church mission in Madagascar. This is a common activity for members of the Church of Latter-day Saints and something that is very important in the Mormon religion. She went away and then came back. The love was still there. John waited a couple more months to see if she would be a little more amenable to his proposal. And eventually she relented, and not just grudgingly. She wanted, with her whole heart, to marry him. They married, and soon she became pregnant. They were both thrilled. It was then that John decided to pursue further studies and they moved so he could attend med school at the University of Virginia, which allowed Emily to be close to her own family. 
They had a daughter, and John felt he never knew what it was to be a man until he held his baby daughter which I think is so sweet. You see these tropes of men always wanting a son, dreaming of throwing a football and such like, but daughters have their own charm. And John was completely smitten with the little girl, spending much time with her, teaching her and helping grow her up. John had been at med school for about two years when their small, budding family was invited back to the Jones family home for a reunion and Thanksgiving dinner. John, Emily, and their young daughter Lizzie flew back to Utah for the event going caving. November 24th, 2009. They arrived and his family picked them up from the airport, but there was no time to relax because John's brother Josh organized an excursion to Nutty Putty Cave with 10 other friends and family members. It was to be a festive time, a party in the natural world just before the Thanksgiving holiday, a time to enjoy each other's company, share memories and catch up in a fun activity where everyone was in the same place, coming from far away to visit home. They all made the joke that after Thanksgiving, they would all be too fat to fit in the cave. Caving was a fun pastime for the family. They went when the kids were little and all of them enjoyed the adventure. However, John hadn't gone into a cave in years when Josh invited him on the excursion from their parents' Stansbury Park home. The Nutty Putty Cave was discovered by caver Dale Green in 1960, and it was named after the clay he found in many of its tunnels. The ancient fissure was formed by hot rising water, and the humid air is slowly but constantly degrading the rock, giving the secretions a putty-like consistency. The clay oozes out readily and changes from a solid to an elastic fluid when squeezed gently. Random fact, Nutty Putty was the original product name for Silly Putty. As a kid, I had some Silly Putty. I love to play with it, and my favorite thing about it was as this picture is showing. I used to flatten it out like a pancake and then lift prints of comics or other things that had liftable ink. Of course, there's all kinds of other stuff you can do with this material. Very handy for opening bottles and making little figurines. Gosh, I completely forgot about that novelty toy. Looking at it now, it's like it's been dug up from the deepest, darkest cavern of my memory. Okay, okay, enough digression. Let's get back to the story. Thousands of people have explored Nutty Putty Cave, which was once so popular that a queue formed at its entrance. The entrance itself is on top of Blowhole Hill, called that way because the cave entrance is literally a hole straight down into the hill. The hole is ringed with smaller rocks to mark the entrance, making sure people don't fall straight in. As a side note, in researching this moat of frozen time, I also found out that there's a little bit of elitism in terminology. While the general public uses the terms spelunker and caver interchangeably, the cave exploration community defines these by saying a spelunker has not been trained in the latest caving techniques, and a caver has. This distinction was made in 1985 by Steve Knutson, editor of the American Caving Accidents publication. Influenced by the name of your magazine much? For the curious, spelunker is derived from the Latin term spelunca, meaning cave or cavern, itself derived from the Greek. Caving comes from the Latin cavea or caverna, meaning cave. So they both started out on equal footing. Honestly, to me, it just feels like random shaming. Speleology is still the word we use to define the study of caves. Apparently those folks didn't get the memo that the spell prefix was uncool. Darn those noob scientists. Now back to the Jones family. Evening. Night was already visiting, the stars shining overhead. At around 8pm, the group entered the cave and explored a large chamber called the Big Slide. 
named because it was a wide, flat, well-worn feature where you could literally slide down. In fact, the wearing of the slide was due to so many visitors coming to the cave, smoothing its natural surface to a point where it became very slippery and a cause for concern for the authorities managing the cave. After they enjoyed their time slip sliding down the 45 degree angle, John and Josh broke off with two friends because they wanted to find a greater challenge, a tight passage called the birth canal. They split up, wriggling into alcoves and passages to look for it. On his head, John wore a rainbow-colored 1970s-style caving headlamp his father had bought him. He'd kept it since the family trips of his childhood. Searching for the famed passage, John chose a waist-high hole to explore. John went in headfirst, pushing himself, wiggling like an earthworm, moving inch by inch with his hips, stomach, and grasping with his fingers. Little did he know, he had found the exact spot he was looking for. As he crawled deeper and deeper, he felt the passage narrowing, and he felt the ping of common sense finally take over. This is too tight, he thought. I need to back up. He tried to crawl backwards, but he wasn't able to make any progress. He felt the passage was too narrow and he couldn't gain purchase with his hands and feet. After all, it's much easier to crawl into trouble than out of it. Now, it's worth noting that they would have had maps of the cave with them that day. There are two survey maps, both of which are still available on the Languishing Nutty Putty Cave website. Even though the cave is closed, the original recommendation states that cavers should take a copy of both maps with them. One of the maps has a set of rules, the fourth of which says, and I quote, Do not squeeze into anything that you might not be able to squeeze out of. There have been several rescues and call-outs to the cave because of people getting stuck in tight passages. I do wonder if John took the time to read this paragraph or remember his caving training as a child. This seems like a very common sense guideline to follow. However, his greed for adventure seems to have been too great, and he didn't follow this most basic rule. John was now stuck in a flattish passage and could find no place wide enough to turn his body around in order to leave the tunnel. The only option, he thought, was to go forward and try to find a place large enough to turn his body 180 degrees. So he kept going, even though the rock was closing tighter around him with every move. He crawled, he struggled, feeling the damp air and heat of the cave around him, which made it harder to breathe. He finally came to a fissure which dropped nearly straight down in front of him, and he could swear that it widened out at the bottom. He had to go for it. There had to be a bigger chamber in the rock that would give him a chance to turn around. However, the fissure was super tight, and John needed to suck in his chest to wriggle down it. So he took a deep breath, then squeezed all the air out of his lungs, sliding his torso over a lip of rock and down into the 10-inch wide side of the crevice, pushing himself down into a fissure, eager to investigate that area at the bottom. He needed to breathe, so he took in another gulp of air, and then realized he was stuck. Like really stuck. Unable to move, stuck. He started flailing a bit, panicking, wiggling his arms and legs, trying to push himself back upward. But these struggles only made John slide deeper into the narrow eight and a half inch wide side of the fissure. Stuck in the passage. His arms were now useless, one arm being pinned underneath him, the other was forced backward by an outcropping of rock. The rainbow headlamp his father had given him had bounced off into the rocky unknown. 
Heart-wrenchingly, the crack that John banked on getting his freedom from didn't widen out. It narrowed and all but closed. He was stuck around 400 feet from the entrance to the cave in a passage measuring only 10 by 18 inches. That's 26 by 45 centimeters. He called for his brother Josh, hoping he could help him out of his new predicament. Josh arrived quickly, hearing his brother's pained cries, wondering what could be wrong. John explained the situation as best as he could, and both remembered the incident where their father had gotten stuck for a time, and took comfort in the fact that they could escape with a little ingenuity and teamwork. But as Josh entered that waist-high tunnel, he started to feel apprehensive at the tightness of the passage. When he reached the corkscrewing passage which John had previously had trouble with, he got stuck himself. Eventually he worked through and saw his brother's feet sticking out, but a feeling of dread soon settled in. Quote, seeing his feet and seeing how swallowed he was by the rock, that's when I knew it was serious, Josh said. It was really serious. The two devoutly Mormon brothers prayed together, asking God to guide them through this process and help in their situation. Josh knew that trying to grab John's feet with his hands would be dangerous, and he wouldn't have much leverage, so he worked backward through the passage and entered again feet first. He crab-crawled his way past the muddy walls, all the way to John again. John's body moved up a precious few inches, but he had nothing to hold on to and slipped back into the crevice as soon as Josh released him. Josh felt his heart drop. Caving had always been an adventure for him, where he was an intrepid explorer discovering new things, but now he was powerless and overwhelmed, filled with a sense of dread and almost despair. His older brother, his best friend, was stuck and helpless in a dark hole. I had to get out, said Josh. He raced back to the surface to call 911 to get rescue teams out there. This was too big a problem for one man to handle. While he was gone, a friend went into the tunnel to stay with John to reassure him. Josh steeled himself with the knowledge that help was coming and went back to John's side to make small talk while waiting for emergency crews to arrive. Josh talked about his girlfriend and wondered if he should make his way to medical school. They also sang their favorite hymns and prayed, giving them both comfort. It took an hour for the emergency workers to arrive at the location. Josh heard rescuers at the cave entrance and went to find them. I didn't want to leave him, he said. His life was in that cave, in that little crack. But John reassured him, giving him permission to leave. However, John's mental state would soon be tested when tendrils of claustrophobia started to creep in. I honestly don't know how or why I'm writing this script, other than I find the whole event quite tragic and captivating. I personally have quite severe claustrophobic reactions, even in medium-sized spaces, so I can tell you how it feels. I can't even imagine how brain-breaking it would be to actually be in a situation where you are physically completely stuck between a rock and a rock place. There is no leeway. The walls cannot and will not move. Claustrophobia is a horrible, horrible feeling. You feel trapped and you must get free, no matter what. Your mind feels like running off into the jungle like a wild tiger, yearning for freedom. But you can't move. It feels like you're buried alive. You can't breathe and often start to hyperventilate. Feeling the warmth of your breath reflected by the wall feels even worse and you get hotter and hotter. That hotness causes your brain to feel desperate and weird, almost tingly in a very bad way. 
things are just too, too close and you just have to push away. You literally want to jump out of your skin. Trust me, it is a bad, bad time. Emergency rescue teams arrive. Even though rescue personnel are trained to be calm, Dr. Doug Murdoch was worried to hear that John was stuck upside down. He knew that humans are not designed to function in an inverted position for long, and he worried for John's safety. Human bodies are engineered to walk upright, and the heart works with the force of gravity, not against it. Dr. Murdoch knew that John didn't have much time. Being upside down, your body has to pump the blood out of the brain all the time, he said. Your body isn't set up to do that. The entire system starts to fail. Already, blood and fluids were pooling in John's brain and lungs. His circulation was slowing, capillaries leaking, toxins building up in his blood. If the rescuers were to free John and rush him out in the wrong position, those toxins could hit his heart all at once and kill him. There are very few studies about the long-term effects of being inverted, but Murdoch estimated John might have 8 to 10 hours to live. The body relies on gravity to drain blood from the head, and when having to pump to the legs, that's four and a half feet upward. Being inverted increases the blood pressure, risking strokes, seizures, and ruptured blood vessels, including bleeding into the retina of the eye. In addition, breathing is more difficult because of fluid pooling in the lungs as well as the intestines pressing on the diaphragm. Susie was the first rescuer to climb down into the tight hole and visit with John. She knew what it was like to be alone in the darkness at Nutty Putty Cave. Once she'd been stuck. She had curled into a ball to turn around and was unable to move her legs. She couldn't hear her group, started to panic, and then calmed herself and focused on her breathing. Millimeter by millimeter, she moved her legs ever so slightly until she freed herself. I used to be so afraid of tight enclosed spaces in the dark, she said. What do I do? I make it one of my passions and my loves. Inside the tunnel, Susie tried to free John with everything her vast caving experience granted. She tied a rope around John's lower legs, stringing it back to the rest of the team who were in an open area at the tunnel's entrance. The team pulled but didn't have enough power to move John. The friction of the rope rubbing against the stone was too much. Susie helped him shift positions, but she couldn't lift him. Knowing he had already been down there for hours, Susie offered him some water to keep him from getting dehydrated, letting it flow down one of his arms, hoping it would reach his mouth. She also cut off his jeans by a few inches to reduce the friction and slim his legs down. John, ever of good spirits, joked that his wife would be thrilled. She hated that pair of jeans and would be glad to finally throw them away. They also chatted about everyday life to try to take their minds away from despair. But as John talked, his voice became nasal, his breathing labored. Susie could hear that his lungs were filling with fluid. Susie was completely unaware of how much time had passed. Underground, it is pitch black. They're blanketed in complete darkness except for the headlamp that lighted her progress, or lack thereof. For two hours, Susie tried everything she knew. Eventually, she was out of ideas. And disappointed, she left John's side and clambered back to the surface so another rescuer could take her place. While she was working with John, the team was rigging a pulley system anchored to the tunnel's walls with a series of climbing anchors designed to fit quickly and tightly into rock. This, they hoped, would solve the friction problem. 
The anchors needed to be pushed through a thick layer of powdery calcite that coated the cave walls. The team would then string the rope through the attached pulley. They tested each new anchor for friction. If it was still too great, they would add another pulley. Progress was painfully slow in the twisting passage. How slow? Each trip into the tunnel to pass a piece of gear took nearly an hour. As the hours passed, rescuers arrived from all over the state of Utah. The rescuers set up a command center and brainstormed all through the night, trying to figure out how to get John out of his predicament. Was there a back entrance to the tunnel? No, it ended shortly after the crack where John was stuck. Six gallons of vegetable oil were ordered to help slide John out. They even considered explosives. But it was quickly determined that neither would work. The most obvious solution to us lay people would be drills and chisels. Those arrived throughout the day, but the larger equipment was too big to position near John. The smaller equipment was too slow. When rescuers tried to widen the rocky corkscrew to prepare for John's exit, it took an hour and a half to drill through just six inches of rock. Progress was at a snail's pace. I gotta say that really surprises me. Considering that the cave is made out of this crazy goopy material, I'm a bit shocked that it was too hard for the drills to make much progress. Meanwhile, John was salivating like mad, another symptom of being upside down for too long. He was starting to have delusions and hallucinations. Emily, John's wife, spent the 24th waiting by the phone, expecting news that John was free. But when morning came on the 25th, she couldn't wait anymore. She took Lizzie, their young daughter, and drove to the cave with John's parents. There were more than 100 people talking, planning, and waiting amidst ambulances, fire trucks, and police SUVs. She was grateful and humbled that God had blessed them with their help. Emily said, I knew I couldn't do anything to help, but I really wanted to give him a hug when he got out. I just imagined him being really tired and scared. The rescuers had rigged a special police radio system so that Emily could speak to John, and she did. She hadn't said anything before, but now, when things seemed so dire, she knew she had to tell him she was pregnant again, that their baby was due in June. She told him that he'd better come out of that cave so he could be a father again to their new child on the way. At this news, John cried with equal parts joy and frustration. He was so happy that their little family would be welcoming a new member, but he also felt the extreme stress of the situation and was starting to acknowledge in his mind that he may not get out of there. Lieutenant Tom Hodgson of the Utah County Sheriff's Office was one of the on-scene commanders. He was tall, broad-shouldered, a man in his 50s with a bristle brush, mustache, and buzzed hair. He tried to comfort Emily and assured her that they would get John out. However, he knew all too well the perils of the situation. Just a few years back, a 16-year-old boy got trapped in the very same tunnel that John was in. Crews took 14 hours to free him, and he was in the hospital for three days afterward. State officials closed the cave when a second person got stuck at Nutty Putty less than a week later. It was closed for around two years, but then opened up for cavers who requested a permit to go there. It had only been open for six months when John's family decided to pay a visit. When the team got stuck, a pulley system, just like the one they were working on now, freed the 5-foot, 7-inch tall, 140-pound teen in 2004. But John was 200 pounds and 6 feet tall, further down the tunnel and rescuers could only reach about 6 inches of his legs. 
This just makes me feel like screaming at him. Why did you keep going forward? Don't do that. Just stop and yell for help at the first sign of trouble. Come on. Have some common sense, please. Luckily, even with the differences in situations, the police system was starting to work, inching John slowly out of his crushing prison. The team pulled and pulled. They worked in an eight-man tandem, all pulling as one. However, his long legs and the awkward shape of the cave made John's feet hit the tunnel's low ceiling. He screamed in pain at the contact as his legs weren't getting enough blood from his struggling heart and were extremely tender. The rescuers realized they may have a terrible choice to make. Because of the angle of the tunnel, they couldn't bend John's body backward without breaking his legs. And if they did so, the shock could kill him in his weakened state. Fortunately, they managed to drag John close enough to give him an IV, food and water, helping him replenish his strength. As they pulled, John was frequently in pain, so they paused often. But each time they pulled, they managed to inch him up a bit more. John was exhausted from the ordeal, but grateful for the moment, they pulled him up enough to finally make eye contact with his rescuers. His eyes were bloodshot, red, and his face was crusted with dirt, but he was still alive. He smiled at them. They were close enough to hold his hand. Just a short rest, and then they would make one final pull to get him out. What came next? When the rescue team pulled John upward for the last time, they were in for a shock. The rope suddenly went loose in the hands of the rescue team, and like a comedic cartoon, they all fell backward into a pile. The closest rescuer was hit hard in the face with something, and he passed out for a second. The cavern was filled with dust. Once the air became a bit clearer, they realized the stone arch the rope was tied around had shattered and the nearest anchor had come loose from the weak rock. They soon realized, with dread, that John had slid right down the crevice again, this time even deeper than before. The rescuer who was hit in the face with the metal carabiner suffered severe facial injuries and couldn't continue his efforts. He went back up to the surface and then onto the hospital to get patched up. John, shocked and shattered by the fall, breathed shallowly, barely clinging to life. He felt his strength ebbing away, and he felt his consciousness being surrounded by a deep, dark prison. He was struggling to stay alive. John, in the haze of his mind, could hear someone calling his name, but he was too weak to respond. Desperate, the rescuer who called for him tried to lower himself into the crevice to put the rope around John's waist, but got stuck himself. He wriggled himself free, drilled a new hole for the pulley, and crawled out of the cave, exhausted. Another rescuer came to take his place, another who reached John but couldn't get a response from him. Soon after, they rushed an EKG machine down to John, pronouncing him dead just short of midnight an effort to prevent association between his death and Thanksgiving. He was 26 years old. A total of 137 rescuers from many organizations worked tirelessly to free him. Rescuers worked for 27 hours to save John. One person told the media this was his toughest rescue in his 29 years of being a search and rescue volunteer. 
People get so invested in what they're doing. It's really heart-wrenching for the rescuers when they work so hard. They put their whole soul into trying to free the person, hoping the whole time, believing the person will come out okay, and then the person dies. It's just heartbreaking, depressing, and many people don't deal well with that type of failure. Some people commit suicide over it, sadly, even though none of it was their fault. It's really hard. I do have to wonder, and I know this probably sounds a bit savage, but John was alive for three hours after the pulley anchor dropped him back down. Why didn't they just try to numb him up as best as possible and then break his legs to drag him out? I know that sounds absolutely horrific, but it's better than him dying. Yes, the recovery would have been painful, but he would have at least been alive. Maybe he was too weak? Maybe the rescuers felt it would be fruitless? Believe me, I'm not trying to second-guess the experts who were on the scene right then and there. I'm just looking from 2020 hindsight and a tiny bit anguish that more options weren't explored, even if they were a bit stomach-wrenching to carry through. The Aftermath Sergeant Cannon said once John had been declared dead, there were discussions about how do we get him out? There were some rather distasteful discussions as well, things that nobody really wanted to do. You can imagine that probably involved taking his body out piece by piece, which really would be hard for people to do. Cutting up a human body is definitely not something that rescuers sign up for. The authorities also decided that the risk to rescuers was too great. Another person could become trapped just like John. Thus, it was determined that it was too difficult and dangerous to get his body out of the cave. The cave became his tomb. Soon after, the small passageway near John's body was closed with explosives and then the entrance of the cave was sealed with concrete, permanently closing the cave. John's family had a plaque put on the entrance of the cave in his memory. Looking at that plaque, I was really curious as to what HMMS stood for. The internet gave me 27 different options, but none of them seemed correct. If you happen to know, please write to me in the comments. Controversy Michael Levitt, who was the cave's access manager, felt the personal loss of losing John during the rescue effort, but also feels another kind of loss. Levitt's been a Boy Scout leader for 29 years, and the cave was a great place to take his young troops ages 14 to 18. It was a perfect cave for beginner cavers, recreational cavers, and Boy Scout groups, he said. We wanted them to go in so they could learn to cave responsibly and learn to cave in a safe environment. On their outings to the cave, the young men learned confidence, team building, and how to work and struggle together. When it was first closed in September 2007, Levitt worked with others to make sure the cave was reopened in March 2009. As I noted previously, it was closed because two other incidents had happened in the cave. Reopening required the entrance to the cave to be gated and have a permit and reservation system. Nadipati Cave was uniquely well-suited to new cavers, which, at the height of its popularity, was visited by 5,000 to 25,000 people each year. That's a heck of a lot of people. Quote, we do not have another cave like Nadipati Cave, Levitt said. We lost a natural formation, and really, it's sad. It's a huge loss. But there is another point of view. Utah County Sheriff Sergeant Spencer Cannon said that the closure of the cave eliminated calls to their office from those needing to be rescued from the area. There's a sense of relief that we don't have to worry about something like that happening here again. But there were a lot of people who had a lot of enjoyment in that cave, Cannon said. The public was divided. There were many who protested the closure of the cave after Joan's death and others who wondered why it hasn't been closed sooner. 
Regardless, Cannon said that Jones' death made closing the cave the only logical option. Quote, you would hate to take action on everything because if you cause it to cease existing so you'd never have a problem, we would make everyone stop driving, stop drinking, and stop flying, he said, adding that there was a lot of discussion among law enforcement, cave enthusiasts, and Utah's school and institutional trust lands administration about the decision. This quote is so weird since it disagrees with his previous statement that closing the cave was the only logical option. So yes, this is a really sad story, but why didn't they just seal off the dangerous passage? They didn't have to close the entire cave off. Remember that John crawled into that waist-high hole, then had to crawl for a bit to get to the crevice where he died? Why not just seal up that specific passage and maybe any other super dangerous areas that were tight and twisty? Seems like the rest of the cave was safe enough for 14-year-olds, so why close the whole thing and deprive thousands of people of the experience in that cave? It seems like they had very few incidents compared to the number of visitors who went there. Emily's Aftermath Emily gave birth to a boy who she named John after his father. John's beloved wife Emily struggled with losing John for years, but she eventually discovered that loving another man wouldn't mean she loved John any less, and in 2012 she married Donovan Sanchez. End Notes I watched the movie made of this tragedy. It's called The Last Descent, made in 2016. I think he gives an okay representation of what happened, except for several factual inaccuracies. The movie shows that it was just John and Josh that went into the cave on their way from the airport, but history tells us that this was an excursion with the entire family, 10 other people, not just his brother. For nearly the entire film, it seemed like John was just sitting still, not moving a millimeter. But we know from the news reports that he was slowly dragged out at least several feet. At the end, where the pulley anchor comes out of the wall, he just dies. Where in the real history, he was alive for three more hours, the rescue crews anguishing along with him. In the movie, his physical condition just seems to be dust covered. Whereas we know he was suffering severe systematic failure of his body. And I think that detail would have made it a lot more realistic and poignant to watch. So obviously there are some historical fudges going on there, probably for dramatic effect. As John is struggling with hallucinations and delusions, we learn from the story of how he met and married his wife Emily, and those sections are kind of interesting. There's a weird thematic thing going on that feels rather like the last episode of Star Trek The Next Generation and feels extremely scary and creepy for what it turns out to be, but I don't want to spoil it for you. It's easy to look back with 2020 hindsight and try to figure out how problems could have been solved at the time. Try to place yourself back in that situation. Pretend you were the command chief there, taking stock the resources you had or could get in a reasonable amount of time. Remember that it takes an hour to get any item from the surface down to John. What would you have done in that situation? Do you think you could have saved him? Let me know in the comments. I'm eager to hear your solutions. That's the end of our history today. If you got something out of today's episode, please subscribe to the channel, click the bell, and turn on all notifications so you don't miss any of our weekly uploads. If you enjoyed this video, please activate the like button and consider leaving a comment. Both help us grow the channel so we can offer you more histories in this format. If you want to get in touch with me, write to me at the email on the about page or ping me on Discord. And remember to subscribe to our social media channels on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok.
If you're consuming this episode as a podcast, we'd be very thankful if you left a review since that raises our ratings on the podcast sites and helps people find us. As always, much love to our patrons.